So um, this morning, we had the privilege of having Andy Abramson come and to share God's word with us. And Andy was one of the first staff people that I hired here, um, which means he's really old because I'm really, really old. And, um, and you can see what it did to him because when I hired him, he had hair, um, but apparently he doesn't have it. It's actually a little long, Andy, by the way. Um, and Andy has a ministry called Elementum, of which we are a partner with Andy and his wife, Jen, in this ministry to reach young adults. And he's going to share a little bit more about the impact of that and the story of that. And I don't want to take up any more of his dolphin time. So um, I'm going to let you very good. Good job. So there you go, Andy. Welcome, Thanks. Andy Abramson. Thank you. <clears throat> well, it, it's, uh, it's always good to, to be back. Any chance that we get to be with Cold Springs, it's always a special moment to see faces and, and people that we get. Am I not on? He was a youth pastor, too, so, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, try it better? Okay, good. Well, it's always a, it's always a special moment for, for me to be back or our family to be back, um, just to see a lot of faces and friends and people that we get a chance to, to stay connected to. And uh, it's fun because um, my first three kids were born here, and so even a lot of you were uh, getting to hold them in those early years, which is really fun. Um, quick family update before I, I'll do a ministry update here over the next few minutes. Um, but really, really just celebrating where our girls, so they're 20 right now. They just turned 20 years old. Um, and uh, Brooke, this last Friday, graduated from Full Sail University. Uh, it was an intense 20-month program with a full bachelor's in digital animation. Um, so she's going to be an animator, which is really fun. Um, Abby is a junior at Azusa Pacific University. And Macy is uh, graduated high school, and she is almost finishing her real estate license and her piloting license at the same time, which is makes me look like a slacker. So, um, yeah, it's fun, it's fun to, to be a part of uh, those stories, and would love to share with you just a little bit about Elementum and some things that we're celebrating right now, as because you guys are mission partners, and as a way of kind of showing you the extension and the opportunities that you get to be a part of. So there's three pictures on there. I want to share just a, a quick couple stories and then a couple ways that you can pray for us. Um, the bottom left picture is a residency and intern program that we started last year. In fact, I think in the fall of last year, um, the residents and interns were a part of being here. Um, we're starting year two, and so those are people who are looking to go into ministry as a vocation. So many of them are exploring. They're working in children's ministry, college ministry, uh, youth ministry, different uh, positions. And so we're really excited. We got uh, leaders, um, young adults from Jackson, Mississippi, um, North Carolina, Texas, and even one from California here, which we're really excited about. The bottom right picture is a intensive that we did a few weeks ago in Austin. Uh, many of you don't know Nick and Megan Campagna who have joined our team. We're really excited about they are helping facilitate those events and so they were out in Austin just a few weeks ago and so that's the bottom right picture there. We're really excited about that. And then the middle picture is a group of leaders who um, have committed to coming into Austin once a quarter for us to work on their ministries together. And it's really fun. So even in that picture is uh, Arizona, Missouri, Oklahoma, Texas, um, 
North Dakota and Illinois. So they all fly in for two days every quarter and we get a chance to work with them, which is an incredible, incredible thing. A couple of ways that you can be praying for us specifically. Um, one of those is David invited me several months ago to go with him to Africa um, to work, to do some of the ministry that you guys have been connected with there. So we're excited to jump in with that. Um, my daughter, Macy, who's 18, is going to be jumping in on that trip with me. So re we're really excited just to see the work that you guys have been engaging there over the last several years. Secondly, is just prayer for the multiplication of ministry leaders. We have opportunities every single month to connect with new leaders, create new spaces of equipping, support, training. Um, and so we'd love you for you to pray for that as well. Third one is probably the biggest one for us. Um, we are in a season right now where we have this sense, and I'll share about it maybe a little bit in my sermon here today, is the sense that God's leading us into a new season. And a part of that new season is actually creating a home base and a space in Austin to host leaders throughout the year. And so currently our house is on the market. Um, we are looking for property, probably seven to 10 acres in the Austin area, and we are going to build a house as well as multiple smaller houses so that leaders can actually come to Austin and we can host them on property. Um, so our goal is 100 plus leaders each year um, to be a part of the ministry as a way of supporting Love Men. Those of you who know me, you know how big our home has always been for ministry. Um, it's always been a vital part of what we do. And so we'd love for you to be praying for us in that. Just know that you're an extension of these stories, uh, that you get a chance to impact leaders all over the country um, through the work that you're doing, through your prayers, through your financial support, and your uh, emotional support of what we do. So we always appreciate the work that you guys are doing, okay? If you have your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to be in there for just a few minutes here today. I'm going to um, lead some verses kind of moving in that direction, but I want to spend, we're uh, in this series of looking at foundations and looking at what are some of those kind of key foundational things to what a community of faith ultimately looks like. And it's interesting for me, though, as I begin to reflect on this message over the last few weeks as I got... Kind of the, I knew I was slotted in to speak here today and just spend some time reflecting and prepping. I was just reminded about my selfishness. Um, I don't know any if anybody else is, would kind of identify as being a selfish person in here. Okay, so two of us. Um, so I, I just I think about like just my selfishness, right? Like that I love and ultimately will try to create um, satisfaction for myself. Right? I love when things are about me. And, and it, it's so frustrating whether, you know, on Friday my flight was canceled from Orlando to here. And so frustration because it's not working out the way that I want it to work. Or frustration that the things that I want to, to happen in a certain way. Or even in church, right? Like that, that's a part of even faith community. Sometimes it can seep in where we want it to be about us. Ah, oh, somebody's sitting in my seat, or I didn't get my parking spot, or what, you know, like, there, there's, there's this way in which sometimes that we like comfort, we like convenience, we like to make it about us. Well, it's interesting, because this actually started way back at the beginning with the first sin of, uh, within after creation. I'm going to read this passage for you, and really this passage is the story of us, right? It's a story, we can look at this passage and say, well, that's 
somebody else. But the reality is, is as we begin to kind of dissect and dig down, this is really the story of us. So listen to this story in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then both of their eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man's and, and it, uh the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave some food, fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. And it's interesting, as you look at this passage, really when we begin to boil down sin, it's really around self-love, right? Whether I'm lying or I'm stealing or I, I'm like manipulating things, it's really around self-love. It's really that I love myself or that I actually want to determine the rules of my own life. Right, which ultimately, at its very foundational root, is just selfishness. It's self-love. It's, it's desiring something for ourselves and really the elevation of ourselves above other people as well as above God, where we actually get to play God. I want to play God. I want to determine the rules. I want to say what's right for my life. Don't tell me what I can do. Don't tell me what I can't do. That's ultimately just selfishness. And when you think about sin... If you want to think about sin at its foundational level, it all boils down to self-love. That we are people who love ourselves more than other people. And it's interesting, as I was thinking about this here today and just this passage and thinking about this idea of foundation, in our sin, we always choose ourselves. You know, like, like we see this in our kids, we see this in our spouses, we see this in our own lives. When it fundamentally comes down to our sin, we always choose ourselves. You know, it's interesting as you look at that Genesis chapter 3 story, that two significant things happened in that moment. Number one is there was a vertical fracture that was between us and God where we actually could not be in the presence of God anymore. And that sin ultimately fractured our relationship and distanced us from God. But it's interesting because secondly, it also fractured a, a horizontal relationship with each other. So now the relationships around us, there's tension and frustration and jealousy and anger and hatred with our brothers and our sisters because of that sin and that fraction relationship. 
It's interesting in Matthew chapter 22 that Jesus addresses this. Listen to this verse, in starting in verse 34. It said, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. So what Jesus is saying is saying there is a fracture in the vertical relationship and the desire is to restore that relationship. So in the part of the restoration of that relationship is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he goes on, he says, but the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself which really addresses the, the horizontal fracture in relationship with each other of saying, love other people as well. And then he says this word. He says, and all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So what Jesus is saying, he's saying, like, I can boil everything down for you. Like, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself because this was the way that it was intended to be. Like back in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we had a perfect access and relationship with God where we were in communion with him as well as a perfect relationship with each other in that moment it was broken. And we see the ripple effects of that, don't we? Like we live those effects every single day. In our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, we experience this. It's interesting, one of the... Um, kind of the theological fathers, was Augustine. And he uses Latin term, incarvatus in se, which basically is the curving in of ourselves. That, that in, in kind of ourselves, there's this self-love and curving in of ourselves that ultimately God is addressing with us and continues to address with us as we try to uncurve the self-love that is curved in on ourselves. See, here's the problem, I think. And as we think about like this foundation of community of faith, the church will never have the impact if we just make it about us. And man, we love to make it about us. We do. And even in our faith communities, in our churches, in our groups and small groups and, and, and ministries, that we love to make it about us. But the problem is, is the expression of that faith community will never ultimately have that impact if we continue to make it about us. I think about just the opportunities that we have. David was mentioning that one of the, the, the areas that's specifically important to us is the ages of 18 to 29. It's interesting as you begin to look at those stats, you begin to see that most people come to faith before they will graduate for college or in their 20s. But depending on statistics, that one in 3% of people 18 to 21 or 29 are actively engaged in their faith, and most people make the most significant life decisions in the, the decade of their 20s. Faith, family, career, all of those major decisions. And we know that, and we hear that, but we still choose ourselves. We do. Like, we continue to, to hear those things and know those things, yet we want to continue to make it about us. 
See, what we want to look at this morning for a few minutes is this foundation of that part of our mission is people. The mission is people. Look at 2 Corinthians um, chapter 5 together. So here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. It says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I want to talk about four different things from this passage here this morning. Number one, number one is that our motivation is Christ's love. That our motivation is Christ's love. Look at verse 14 together. Here's what Paul says. He says, for Christ's love compels us. He starts out and says that the foundation of this whole thing, the beginning of this whole thing is not like guilt, it's not manipulation, it's not working harder. He's saying the beginning of this whole thing is because I understand what Christ has done for me. And because I am so overwhelmed with that love of what Christ has done on the cross for me, reconciling me back to God, that that love compels me to do something. That ultimately the foundation is, is that our motivation is Christ's love. Man, motivation is a huge thing. And what we see over and over again in the lives of the people around us, as well as the scriptures, is that when Christ legitimately comes into contact with people, that their lives are never the same. I think one of the most fascinating examples of this is the disciples. Now, I love the disciples because they're kind of some bumbling fools, right? And, and I kind of feel like that sometimes. So it's like these, these, these kind of ragtag group of people who are following Jesus. And Jesus is like, man, don't you get it yet? Let me explain it again, which kind of comforts me a little bit, right? Because there's a sense of like they're just kind of stumbling and trying to figure it out. It's interesting as you begin to kind of look at the, the, the chronological account of what happens to the disciples. I was looking at John even here over the last few weeks is... Like, you read kind of John up to chapter about 15, and you see the stories of these disciples. Then John chapter 15 comes, 
Jesus talks about abiding in Christ. In 16, he says it's going to be difficult. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Then in 17, he prays for himself. He prays for the disciples, prays for future believers. Jesus goes to the cross, and what happens to the disciples? They're gone. You can't find them anywhere. Right? Even Peter's like, dude, I'm, no way. I'm not denying the faith, right? I'll stand by you, Jesus, to the end. What happens to him? Gone. Right? And it's interesting because then Jesus rises from the dead. The disciples regather. Jesus is with them for 40 days. Then he ascends into heaven and says, hey, go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends on the believers of that time, and what happens to these ragtag kind of misfits? Like, they become the most tenacious, ferocious God-fearers. In fact, have you ever um, heard accounts of the way that the, uh, the, the disciples died? I got a list here for you. So just listen to this. This is the account of these people who are running in fear for their lives in one moment, what Christ's love compels them to do. Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia when he was killed by a sword. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt after being drugged by horses through the streets until he was dead. Luke was uh, hung in Greece as a result of preaching to the lost. John faced martyrdom when he was boiled in a huge uh, uh, vat of oil while he's being persecuted in Rome. However, they realized that he wasn't dead, so they ended up sentencing him to the island of Patmos, where we get the book of Revelation, who is the only one who died from, like, old age. Peter was crucified as an upside-down, X-shaped cross. According to church tradition, it was told, he told his tormentors that he felt unworthy to, to die the same as Jesus Christ. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, was thrown over 100 feet from the southeast pinnacle of the temple when he refused to deny in faith. When they discovered he, he didn't die from the fall, they beat him with, to death with clubs. Bartholomew was a missionary in Asia where he was martyred when he was flogged to death by a whip. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in, in Greece after being whipped severely by seven soldiers. They tied his body to the cross with cords to prolong it with agony. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India during one of his missionary trips. Jude was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. James the Great, James was ultimately beheaded in Jerusalem. A Roman officer who guarded James watched in amazement as James defended his faith at his trial. Later, the officer officer walked beside James in, a, in a, the place of execution, overcome by conviction, declared a new faith in Jesus, and knelt beside James to be beheaded with him. Like, these are the same guys who are running in fear, who were overwhelmed by the revelation of Christ's love for them that compelled them to do unbelievable things. And what we see over and over again is when we come face to face with God, our lives are never the same. See, I think there's this interesting passage um, in, in 1 John chapter 4. I don't have the, the text on the screen, but it talk, John talks about in 1 John, he says, if anyone claims to love God 
but hates their brother or sister is actually a liar. Now, why would James make such a strong statement calling somebody a liar? Here's, here's my hunch behind it. Because if somebody realized truly what Christ's love did for them, there wouldn't be a choice in whether you love your brother or sister or not. Like, there's no other option, right? When you actually understand, like, I was broken, I was a sinner, I was reckless, I was abandoned, and Christ came, rescued me, what is my response? There is no other response, right? We love a church in our culture, our American evangelical culture, we love church that has options, we want to make serving optional, and we want to make giving optional, and we want to make community optional. And, and I just look at that, and I say, is there really an option? Like, if we really understand what Christ has done for us, there really is no other option. There is no other option. Because here's what Paul tells us, is our response, secondly, that we see in, in, in 2 Corinthians, that our response is total surrender to him. Our response in understanding what Christ has done for us is total surrender to him. Look at verse 15. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. I'm going to say it one more time. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but him who died for them and was raised again. Amen. Here's what we understand, that our response is total surrender to Jesus. Now, here's what I know, is, is there are like big moments of that, and there's sometimes small moments of that. Man, I, I feel like for us as a family... Like, we're in kind of one of those seasons and those moments. I was sharing with somebody over coffee the other day. I, I feel like that there were three major times in the last about 13 years where God has, like, prompted me, like, I want you to put all the chips on the table. I want you to put it all on the table. Go all in on this thing. The first time was back in 2010 where God asked us to step outside of a full-paying job to raise support, the thing I said I would never do, to become a missionary to help churches with college ministry and young adults. Man, I just remember that season. Some of you were around that season. I'm sharing with you guys, like, I think I'm supposed to do this thing. I don't really know what I'm supposed to do, but here we go. Secondly, I remember that kind of that stirring. I still remember my dad and I went out Black Friday shopping, just some random like last minute thing, like, hey, let's go in the middle of the night and go Black Friday shopping. And, and we're in this small town in southern Minnesota, so we're kind of hanging out. I remember parking the driveway in the, uh, in the driveway about 2, 2.30 in the morning, and me telling my dad for the first time, I think we're going to move to Texas. It was kind of that second time of like, Andy, I want you to put all the chips in. The third time is right now for us. Like, we really believe that our next season, God is asking us to put everything on the line, saying, I want you to create a space that leaders can come and be hosted in your home around the year. And it's scary. But here's the deal. Your, your steps of faith, your total surrender, it may not be starting an organization. It may not be moving to Texas, which living in California, it's not a bad idea. Um, like, it may not be moving to Texas, 
right? It may not be selling your house and, and creating a space for people to come and live with you. It may not be those things, but I guarantee you there's things. And they can be big things that your family's being called to do, or they can be small things. Hey, I want you to walk across the office and talk to that person. Hey, that neighbor, I want you to invite him in your home. That young teenager, I want you to have them live with you. That person who comes into the doors of the church, go talk to them. Like part of our response is total surrender to him. So I don't know what that thing is for you today, but I know that as we live lives of faith that God asks us to take those steps. Number three, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that our position is a new creation. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. That if we have been transformed by Christ, that we are a new creation. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Follow along with me. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, I'll say that one more time, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. This is Genesis chapter 3 right here, right? This is self-love, cravings, desires, like the rest, we are by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, and even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that the coming ages might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If your life has been transformed by Christ, you are a new creation. You are a new creation. And the Bible is very clear. We don't have time to go into this, but it talks about that we've received new life, that we have a new standard, that we have a new purpose, we have new perspective, we have a new home because of being transformed into a new creation. But here's the last thing that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Our message. And our message is that we are a minister of reconciliation. I love these verses. Look at verse 18 together. For all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So he's talking about that, you know what reconciliation is? Like reconciliation is this process of making right. What was wrong was made right. What was intended was fixed. What was ultimately broken is now corrected. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ but not just that, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Here's what we need to recognize. As people of faith, not only have we been restored and sanctified and redeemed, but we've been invited to carry the greatest message ever, the message of reconciliation. Do you understand that you are invited to be a part of the work that God is doing? That community of faith is not just about us, it's about a mission of people. It's not just about the people who are in this room. It's also about the people who are not in this room. It's not about our comforts and our desires and our preferences. Biblically, biblically, it's about those who are more mature in Christ, about submitting and releasing their desires in sake for people who are not yet reached. As a people of faith, the foundation is is that we are about a mission of people and that you are carriers of the greatest message ever, a message of reconciliation. I just think that that's an incredible thing, that not only did God redeem us and restore us and reconcile us and is he sanctifying us, But he invites us to be a part of the work that he's doing in the world. That he invites us to be a part of carrying the greatest message ever, the message of reconciliation. I love what the ESV says, that we've been entrusted with this message that we are ambassadors, which goes back to Genesis chapter 3. That we've been invited in that reconciliation process, in the vertical, uh, uh, the vertical fracture as well as the horizontal fracture, that we get to be a part of making that right of what God is calling us. So here's the question for us. Like, I, and, and I want to start kind of talk first individually. Like, so what does this mean for individually us sitting in these chairs? But I think there's also something that we need to kind of shift towards of not just individual application, but also collective application as well. See, a couple things in terms of just like individual application. Number one is that we need to begin to take responsibility and understand that our mission is people. That our mission is people. And whether that's coming into the walls of this church or in your office place or your school or your neighborhood or your home or your sports club, like that mission is people and God gives us an opportunity to engage in that. So we need to begin to take ownership of that. But secondly, is to realize the message that we carry. Do you understand that as you go out and interact with the world, that you have an opportunity to carry the message of reconciliation? Thirdly, Uh, to pray and look for opportunities. And then lastly is to believe that God is intentional and strategic in your placement. Because I think that there's an individual response. But I think that there is also a collective response. I think that there is a, a response in terms of us collectively. And I think... 
there are certain moments in the life of groups of people where there's a unique opportunity to make decisions that have ripple effects into the future. You know, I call these things hinge moments. I actually um, didn't share a story with the first service that I think I'm going to share right now, and I'm going to like try to kind of cr- do this as, as lovingly and graciously as I can. Um, one of the moments that I think about is there was a period of time in uh, this church where we were invited into one of the, the deepest, most intense communities I've ever been a part of. In fact, I remember the first day that we moved here, I was invited into this community that, that were meeting in Pastor David's house that some of you were in that space. And I just remember there was a season that was so unbelievably fruitful in ministry. I remember there was a small group of us that would meet together weekly, every other week, and we'd open up our homes together, we'd share meals together, we'd hang out together. And over the course of about 18 months to 24 months, man, things began to just explode with the amount of people that found that community. And I remember like this, this sense of like, man, people really need this thing. And there was a conversation that we had, and I remember sitting in the, the, the home that we were in, we we're kind of talking about it as some of the key leaders, and there was like this moment of decision of saying, like, um, what do we do to open up more space for more people to be entered into this community? And I remember this conversation as we're talking and, and we began to kind of express, some of us were saying, hey, we, maybe what we need to do is we need to split into a couple of different homes to open up more spaces. And then some other people were like, no, we can't do that. We won't be able to see our friends. We won't be able to hang out. And I remember this like tension in this moment. And in that moment, we decided more about us than we decided about the mission of people. That we decided that it was more important for us to be comfortable than people who need to be invited in. It is interesting as I have thought about that group of people and us collectively together over the last several years, man, there's part of me that is so grateful for that group of people, the community and the friendship that we found. But there's something in the back of my mind that wonders, what if we chose something different? What if we didn't make it about us, but we made it about the people who weren't there? And I wonder at times if that's one of those hinged moments that we don't even know are in front of us. Our family feels like that we're at one of those moments right now. These moments of not like, what if individually are you going to decide, but collectively, what are you going to decide? And I wonder for you guys at Cold Springs, man, what's that decision? Like, what's the opportunity to say, man, are we going to be about a mission of people? Or are we going to be about a mission of comfort? Are we going to be about the people who are not here? Or are we going to be about having my same seat every single week? 
And not only do I want to challenge us individually, but I also want to challenge us collectively. Because I think that there's opportunities for us together to make significant decisions. And I pray, I pray for you guys as a church, as me being an extension of that family, that when those moments happen of saying, what are we going to decide? How are we going to create, how creatively about the people who are not here? How are we going to think creatively about our groups? How are we going to think creatively about the opportunities in front of us? I pray that in that moment, that you'd be so compelled by what Christ has done for you that there's not really a decision. There's not really a decision. Because because of what he's done for us, that we have an opportunity to carry the greatest message ever. Let's pray together. God, just thank you for, um, I thank you so much for this room full of people. Thank you for bringing them into um, myself and Jen and Brooke and Abby and Macy and Riley and Drew. I thank you for interweaving them into our lives. Thank you for what they have meant to us of being a part of an extension of your heart and your love for college students and young adults all over the country. But God, I also want to pray for them collectively as they begin to continue to look at the foundation of this community of faith. How do they need to respond? How do they position themselves to extend love and grace to this community, to the people who are not yet here, into their neighbors, into their schools, their workplaces, ultimately to carry this message of reconciliation. Thank you, first of all, for your love for us. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for the invitation to be a part of the work that you're doing in the city and beyond. Thank you for your spirit working among us here this morning. We love you in your son's name. Amen.